right, let's go ahead and get started. It's 1.30. Thank you all so much for coming today. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Bond. I'm a physician. Um, I work at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And um, is it not working? That was just a trial? Yes. Okay. Testing, testing. Now it's 1.30 and we're going to start. <laughs> And uh, welcome so much for, thank you so much for coming here. Last time I was here as a medical student, it was a couple years ago, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I haven't been able to make it back here in about 15 years, so it's fun to come back and um, see how things have changed, have a bit of a different perspective on everything. But again, my name is Elizabeth Vaughn. I'm a physician. My specialty is internal medicine. I work at Baylor College of Medicine. There are two Baylors, and they did split in the 60s. I keep telling my mother that because she went to Baylor, Dallas, and Waco, which is very different than Baylor where I am in Houston. And she keeps saying, well, have they separated? Yes, mother. They have still separated. So separated in, in the 60s. So we're in Houston, Texas, and, um, you know, it's hot there, and I love it. You know, for all of the northerners here, I, I, I have a big, great deal of respect for you in the wintertime, and I will happily fly back on Sunday to my warm weather. <laughs> I am wearing numerous layers right now. It's, it's quite chilly. Uh, the topic of our discussion today is diabetes care in low-resource settings. This really focuses on U.S., but I know there's individuals who work abroad. I hope that as you think through here and think through your individual project, realizing this could go beyond Houston, Texas, and I hope it does, realizing um, that the principles of this could also go beyond beyond diabetes, could go beyond clinical settings, and we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, I'm happy to entertain questions during or clarify things during, so don't feel like you have to wait to the end, but I will allow some questions at the end or leave some time at the end as well. I'll have my email address here. Um, if I don't answer you, it's probably because you didn't put the A in my last name. So there's two A's, and I'll put it again at the end of it as well. The objectives of today are to talk about the TIME project. And so this is a, uh, a project with four components, telehealth, integrated, community health workers, medication access, and education, and group visits. And I call this a project, and by all technicality, is a study. But study to me always was very standoffish and always very harsh. And so I always call this to our community health workers, I call it a project. Um, I think the, the connotation of a study uh, is, is more this kind of rice, uh, rats and mice and, and things going on in the laboratory. Um, but this here is a project that we've been running in Houston for about six years. Uh, and I also want to look at the implications for healthcare and other populations. So again, thinking beyond just diabetes, thinking just beyond urban settings. Background. I always wonder where my speakers kind of pop into. So uh, I am an army brat. I went all over the world. I grew up in church. And many of the verses in church really clicked to me as far as uh, Christ taking care of the poor. And I imagine that's why many of you are here as well. I'm not an anomaly here. Uh, but they didn't really click. They clicked intellectually. And I always had this compassion. How do we take care of the poor? And I always felt sad for the poor. But I didn't really understand what the poor was. I grew up in an army base. You go to a commissary or a PX. Um, it's a very sheltered area. It's like a bubble. I really had not experienced poverty. One day, I was uh, at a friend's house. I was 16 years old, and I was in high school, and she was filling out an application. I said, what are you doing? And she says, well, I'm going to go to Ecuador this summer. And I thought, hmm, sounds fun. And, uh, and she, I said, well, what is that? She said, I'm going on a mission trip. And I said, hmm, sounds fun. And she said, you want to come? And I thought, hmm, sounds free. And so I thought, well, this is a good way. And, and you know, nothing altruistic at all, nothing to help other people, nothing to make the world a better place. It was sunny, and it wasn't cold in Columbus, Ohio. And that was the two reasons I went there. But when I went there, I saw poverty like I had never seen. 
I saw sadness like I had never seen or experienced. And I had this compassion and desire, how can I help these individuals? And there was a missionary team down there, and I said, you know, I want to give them food, and I want to give them clothes, and I want to take care of these individuals. He says, and we need that. And I said, we also, he said, but you give them, you, tell, you share Christ with them as well, and you give them something that never, ever ends. And so there's that balance in taking care of their physical needs, but also taking care of their spiritual needs. And sometimes one weighs heavier than the other at different times in an individual's lives. And you'll see that, that uh, kind of uh, theme take place in the project that we have. Uh, years later, I went to Guatemala. I was in college, and I had decided to become a registered dietitian at the time. And I, I thought, you know, there are so many public health needs. And I saw just waste. They had crops that they would use and just kind of throw them to the side. And I thought, but if someone would teach to incorporate these in their diet, they could learn what a healthy diet is. Certainly there's huge things that we can't overcome. The, the, it's almost impossible to have meat. It's very expensive to have a lot of protein foods. But if we could educate them to utilize their own resources. Uh, if you're familiar with Paul Brand and his mother who went to, to India, there's some amazing stories about her teaching individuals in India to utilize their resources there. And that was inspiring. I read those books, and I, I thought, you know, I wonder if we could do something more. And so I went back to school to the Ohio State University. If there's anyone from U of M that's just to get underneath your skin a little bit. But I went back to the Ohio State University, and I became a registered dietitian. I practiced for that for a few years. I absolutely loved it, but I wanted to do more, and so I went back to medical school. Uh, I practiced for a while uh, after finishing medical school at, at Baylor, and as I practiced, I was in the clinic, it was busy, and I had the opportunity to do a primary care research fellowship. And I thought, well, why do research? I just want to help people. And so a colleague said to me, but how do you know what you're doing works? Well, because people are happy? Because he's like, how do you know what they're already doing in the clinic isn't any better than what you're doing? I thought, fair enough. He says that's called the control arm. Because like I said, before that, research to me just meant a bunch of rats that didn't do very well in the end of the day. And so I learned that research was a lot more than bench research, is what I, I really considered it. And there's a lot of opportunity to say, hey, are we actually doing something that works? Or maybe we're doing something that works, but on the controller, what they're normally doing, this didn't work like I thought it would work, or this is working better. And it really has been just really fascinating to, to look through um, various outcomes in diabetes and also other chronic diseases. One thing I asked when I started this, this work in diabetes is how many people in the world with diabetes are poor? And I had a hard time finding the answer. I found the first statistic in the International Diabetes Federation that said 80% of the world with, who have diabetes live in a low or middle income country. Now, you could be high income, but you live in that country and you are part of that 80%. And so I thought, well, that's as good of a statistic I'm going to get. What about this slice here? What about that dark slice there showing the, the high-income countries, such as the U.S.? Again, hard to figure that exact statistic out, but putting some numbers together and looking at CDC data, it looks like two-thirds of that number, or if you put those numbers together, 93% of the world are either poor, living in a low in a high-income country, or they live in a low-income or middle-income country. So if you were just to take that entire thing and just say, you know what, that small little sliver we have here, that's where most of our therapeutics are going. That's where most of our education is going. That's where most of our treatment is going. It's going to this teeny, 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 tiny sliver in the world. This is the area I'm interested in. 
I started out, and this is one of the Houston clinics, one of our county clinics, and it was, it was fun. Uh, most of my patients had diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and obesity for the cherry on top. And I saw my next patient, hypertension, hyper, uh, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and obesity. Next patient, diabetes, hypertension, no obesity, hyperlipidemia. 26 patients a day. So you can see how the day just went on and on and on. And seeing the same problems, but I never had time to educate my patients. I never had time to, to really say, well, okay, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. But tell someone to lose weight when they're working seven days a week. They don't have time to go to get healthy food. They don't have education for healthy food. And I always say, as these provide, well, lose weight. And what does that mean to someone? And so it became very discouraging to me while I was there, but also kind of this hope of there's got to be something better. There's got to be a better way to do primary care. And I was approached with the idea of doing what's called diabetes group visits. Could diabetes group visits improve care? For a physician as me, seeing these patients over and over and over again, never really feeling like I'm able to make headway, but also for the patient. If they didn't make it by the time the pharmacy ended, they had to go home. They had to come back another day. They had, if they uh, needed labs, they had to come back on another day. And all the other services, they had to come back on another day. Every time they came back, they had to pay their copay again. Every time they came back, they had to take off work again. These individuals, no work, no pay. And as physicians, oh my goodness, they didn't show up to my appointment. And then you take a step back and say, yeah, they didn't show up because if they don't go to work, they're not going to put food on their table at dinner that night. And so the reality of this is how can we make better care? How can we make better lifestyle with the physicians and feeling like they're actually helping? But really more for the patient, how can we make better care in what we're doing? And so, yes, studies have demonstrated that group visits improve outcomes and access to care. I didn't need to prove it. This has been going on since the 90s. There's been numerous studies, and not only diabetes. This has been group visits have been done with cancer. They've been done with hypertension, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes. They've been in all sorts of diseases and conditions. I want to stop and make sure we're clear on what are group visits. They are not DSME. DSME, or Diabetes Self-Management Education, they do not have a provider encounter, so patients have to come back to see the provider, to get their refills, to see the, the pharmacist, uh, to go get their labs. Um, so they don't have that encounter. They really have had varying results in various studies. Some have great results for DSME. Some don't have great results. It really depends on the study. What group visits are is they are group education with the provider encounter. So really they're meant to be a one-stop shop. The patient comes in. They get their education as a group. They see the provider sometimes as a group, but usually that one-on-one, -on -one, they're able to get their, their refills, they're able to go to the pharmacy, get their labs. All of them are set up different, but the idea is they're able to come and get all of this done at one time. They often include low-income minorities. So then the idea of, well, and if you're following this, T-I-M-E, and if you're type A, this is bothering you because I started out with the E and now I'm on the I. And we're not going to go to the T or the M. <laughs> but we will do all four of these. So uh, with group visits, uh, benefit from integrating community health workers. My first experience with community health workers was in India. If you notice if anybody have been to India, you might realize you don't teach without, you teach without shoes. And that was a fun experience, a very odd experience to feel cold feet as I'm teaching. Uh, but I went to India, this is about uh, 10 or so years ago, and I was there for about three to six weeks, uh, three weeks at this one site, and I thought I would be kind of the dock in the box. I go out to the, the kind of the shacks, it was in the slum area, and I would see the patients. This is an HIV initiative, and I thought, well, I'll go out, I'll have my interpreter, and we'll see what the issue is, just your classic, you know, medical trip. 
And I got there, they said, oh, no, 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 you can't go out. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> where do I go? You have to stay in the clinic. They said, look, this is HIV, and HIV is hush-hush in India. And you're white skin, you're light eyes, you're light hair, you'll stand out like a sore thumb. And they said, you can't go out with our team. And I said, oh, okay. And I thought, you know, an email or two before it came out would have been nice to uh, communicate that. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? And so I, I, they said, well, you can stay back in the clinic. And I thought, you know, maybe I could spend my time educating the essentially community health workers that goes out to the field. All of these individuals were not medical. They had a, a variety of backgrounds, sometimes pastors, sometimes respiratory therapists. That was kind of the most medical we got, sometimes a teacher, anything. But they were local. They spoke the local language. They didn't need a translator. They did not stick out. They looked like the population. They understood the cultures and the barriers of the population at hand. This uh, education here I'm doing is called rehydration therapy. Uh, this was actually kind of thought up in India. It's basically cheap Gatorade. So it's a liter of water, a handful of sugar, and a dash of salt. And so what would happen is these individuals with uh, HIV would get diarrhea. They would drink dirty water, or they would drink water that, that gave them even more diarrhea. And so we taught them to have kind of the, the right composition in their water, boil your water first, take a handful of sugar, a dash of salt, liter of water, shake it up, and drink it. And so I taught that to them. And a few weeks later, some of the CHWs came back to me, and they said, look, there was someone, they wouldn't have made it to the clinic, but they're here now in the clinic. I was able to teach them about water and how to do their water like you taught us, and now they're able to come to the clinic and get more help. If not, they probably would have died from dehydration. And so what I realized in that trip is as one person, I impacted a small group of people, and that small group of people then impacted more people. And even though really I wanted to be on the front lines, I wanted to be in people's houses, I wanted to have kind of that, that fun part of the trip, I realized I was a lot more efficacious in the background. And I thought, how could this be applied to other areas that we're doing? What are community health workers? I want to really talk about that because there's all sorts of thoughts on what they are in the U.S. as well as abroad. By definition, they are local individuals who serve as healthcare liaisons in their communities. What I'll see a lot of times is an African-American individual who goes over to a Latino community and says, well, I'm a community health worker, and this person may have a four-year degree in working with individuals who have, you know, an average and eighth-grade education. And I say, you're not a community health worker. You're a social worker, and you can do a lot of great things, but they're different things than what a community health worker does. The idea of a community health worker is someone who is from the community that we're dealing with. We go to that community, we raise up leaders from that community, train them, and then they go back to their community. I remind them that they're really the bridge to care. They're not the bus to care. <laughs> they're the bridge to care. If someone can't get to the appointment, a lot of times they're from that, that area or that village, and they say, oh, you don't take them. You're not the bus. You say, this is the bus. This is the bus station. This is the one I take. Don't do that one. That's always late. Not late. The bus driver's not realized. So take that one at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You can take it over there. And, hey, I'm actually going to be there. I can meet you at the bus stop today. That's a community health worker. They get it. They get the barriers so they can bring that person to the system or to the area of help. They've been found valuable in education. They've been cost-effective, culturally sensitive, and socially improved health outcomes. They have been around since the 50s, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what they are. And a lot of that has to do with training. Uh, we did say, yes, diabetes group visits can benefit from integrating CHWs, and I'll give you a reference list at the end. Training and support have been a major issue, though, with community health workers. They can do wonderful things. They can be a bridge 
but there's very little training. Here you can see states that have any sort of law. Only 36% of the states in the U.S. have any certification law, anything about CHWs. If you're an RN, you go to a certain location, say I'd like to work here, and you're an RN, you say, okay, you probably have a four-year degree, you probably did XYZ training, you probably have ABC skills, and we have an idea, yeah, we have to do some on-the-job training for the specific site, but we're not teaching you how to use an IV. That's going to be bread and butter for your training. If you're a community health worker, what does that mean? And a lot of times clinics don't know what that means, and that can be very scary. And a lot of times these people are thrown out to the front lines because they have this label of CHW, and it sounds like a great thing, but we don't train them. And then even more, if they find out their blood pressure is 190 over 90, who supports them? Who do they come back with? Who do they tell that information to? And so we have a lot of, of issues with feedback. And so that's one of the issues that we've really been trying to work on in our project is how do we train CHWs, but how do we also support CHWs as well? Where's that feedback loop? And international, it gets even more variable. <laughs> they're international, Africa, South America have a lot of CHWs in their country. Um, the vigorous training support and reimbursements were associated with improved performance. That's not rocket science to, to think through that. WHO, if you're interested more in the international side, has a nice uh, pamphlet on that. So then this starts coming up, well, okay, well, could telehealth help train and support CHWs? So we live in Houston. And I think, well, we could just all meet in person. And so in our projects, we get together. It's hard to meet in Houston. If anyone's driven through a large city in traffic or, you know, there goes an hour of your time getting somewhere and then maybe two hours if there's an accident. And we live in the same city. Now take this to rural areas or to villages. Or what about the CHWs in India that I trained? How can we support them? You know, we're talking halfway around the world. And so there's started to be more and more literature on telehealth and um, and you know, telemedicine in other ways. Uh, COVID-19 has highlighted telehealth's ability to enhance healthcare. Before, I, we started doing telehealth in, in our project in 2017. Uh, and you know, before that, I would show this, this slide and I'd say, now, there's this thing called Zoom. It's really, really neat. And look, when you talk, it turns yellow and there's all these little boxes. You know, now people look at this like, oh, I don't want to see one more screen of Zoom. And so it, it really has helped. There were a lot of clinics we'd go to, so you're not doing that telehealth thing, right? No, our providers have to be in person. Everyone has to be in person. And now we realize, no, we don't. Yes, some things we do. We don't do surgeries by telehealth. We don't do wound care by telehealth. There's some things we can't do by telehealth. But there's a lot of things we can do by telehealth. And it's really opened up our minds and also opened up access because we realize, oh, this is how you log on. Oh, this is how you download this. And so now when you have a Zoom meeting, bam, you can do it really quick. So it's opened up the doors, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. But it's also showed the disparities. We saw that very quickly in our public schools. When COVID happened, Schools didn't have telehealth when they needed to have telehealth. And, and it was the areas in disparity, the areas that were low, low income, who didn't have what they needed to. The M on here is our medication access. Back to those pie charts in the very, very first slides I showed you. The majority of hypoglycemic medications or our diabetes medications, the majority of them are available to the minority of individuals. So three of our eight, or of our 11 medications, so 27% of our medications are low cost. Low cost mean $4 a month. And if you're curious, metformin, sulfonylureas, and Actos or Pioglitazone, those are the three. That's it. Outside of that, you have SGL2 inhibitors, GG, uh, LP1 agonists. 
they're all 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 dollars per month, and that's one medication. Now multiply it by three, that people typically take two or three medications. Now an annual income of 20,000, there's no way. There's, and there are some eligibility programs, but these eligibility programs, a lot of times you have to be documented. Half of the patients in our program are not documented. Also, you have to know how to use the internet, and you have to know you have to renew it. So it sounds like, oh, you just get eligible. And I see it time and time again, they get on these programs, and then 30 days later, they're off. Or it takes months to get them on, and then you have to, oh, I have to change their dose. There goes six more, six more months. And so one of the, some of the things I've done is written some literature on the cheap meds, basically. Are they safe? Are they efficacious? And yeah, we found that not all of them, but the formin glimepiride for the sulfonylureas and Actos, they are safe, they're efficacious, and they can be used in this population. Um, and that's been a big thing. If we can't get them on medications, it doesn't matter how much you diet and exercise. If your A1C is 13, it's been like that for five or 10 years, you gotta get on some pills. Insulin, you might be thinking in the back of your mind, saying, well, no, insulin's cheap, right? $24.99 per vial for two insulins at either Walmart or CVS. You say, well, that's not bad, $25, right? That's per vial. Now let's put a patient on 50 to 75 units twice a day. Now we're talking five vials per month. 25 times five. Now we're at 125 per month just for the insulin. No, don't forget they're going to take their metformin or some other pill that's expensive. Metformin's not expensive, another pill. Don't forget their syringes. Don't forget their lancets. Don't forget their eyeglasses because if you can't read this. So, so it it's really is a problem to have insulin in this population as well. So we put all these things together. We call it the time project. Again, telehealth, integrated CHWs, medication access, and ed education in group visits. And the objective of what we did in this project is pioneering combining four separately validated components and comparing clinical outcomes of individuals with type 2 diabetes. This was randomized. The intervention went to time. The control went to usual care in the clinic. The setting was in a community clinic in uh, Houston, Texas. Participants were all low-income Latinos with type 2 diabetes. This was a six-month project. The primary outcome was hemoglobin A1C, and for the non-clinicians, that's basically a three-month average of your blood sugars. And then there are a variety of secondary outcomes, including blood pressure, weight, and preventive care me measurements. This was the structure of our group visits of what we did in the intervention. Uh, monthly group visits for six months. So patients would come to the, to the clinic every month. We did it on a Saturday morning. Why on a Saturday morning? Because when are patients going to be able to come for a duration? We thought, oh, let's do it on a Tuesday. CHWs can't make it. They have their own full-time job. And this, the CHWs here were doing this very much part-time. Paid, but part-time. Uh, in the evening, can't do it. They work sometimes till six or seven. These classes are three hours. So Saturday morning work, Saturday afternoon did not work because they would come very quickly on a Saturday morning. Sometimes if they had to go to work, they'd come for the group visit, they'd come get their things, and then they'd go to work. It's a very hard, hard-working population. Uh, then they'd, they'd come to the visit. They'd get their vitals and their labs. I train CHWs to do this. If I can train medical students to do vitals and labs, I can certainly train CHWs to do it. Uh, they did not do the phlebotomy. Uh, we had the phlebotomist come and do the phlebotomy, but we did uh, POCT or point-of-care testing for their hemoglobin A1C. Uh, they did their blood pressure. They did their weight. And, and it also allowed an opportunity because CHWs knew, oh, how are you doing? ¿Cómo está? So you could talk to them and say, hey, your weight's going up a little bit. And they knew the patient, and they had, a, they had a relationship with the patient. And so they could use that time to talk to the patient. And they got to know them quite well during those times. Then they moved to large group education. If you look on the bottom right here, there's the six topics that we used. And these were very common topics that, that you'll see in diabetes education. 
Um, and then they moved into three small groups, medical, social, and behavioral, and then we came back together for a healthy lunch. This was 100% community health worker-led. When they first started doing this, I was at the forefront. I was training. I was seeing the patients. I was doing blood pressure. And I thought, you know what? They need to see CHWs. They need to see that the CHWs are credible and knowledgeable. I need to train them to be credible and knowledgeable and let, the, and let them uh, take leadership. And so they did the vitals. They led the education. They led the groups, except for the medical part, and the provider would give the, the medications on this one-on-one visit. But we, we would do everything CHW-led. So let's go to month three. We would do large group education on nutrition, and they break into groups. And so they go to the social group. What are the physical barriers? Why can't you eat well? What's going on? Is it you, you don't have a car to get to the store? Is it you don't have the money to get to the Well, here are some ideas. So this store here, on Monday morning, they always have the sale. I go to it. Oh, and this here, these, yeah, those are expensive. Don't go that. Go to this store over here. But the CHWs knew it. Why? Because they themselves are living it. And so one CHW would teach the, the social barriers. Then we moved over to the behavioral barriers. And this a lot of times, was, oh, I'm too anxious. I, I'm, I just can't do this. I, 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 I'm, I eat. I get home. I, I'm too sad. I, so whatever the, the anxious. And then we, had, uh, we were teamed with churches. Sometimes they would come into that part, and, and we talk about depression. And we talk about, um, you know, I, sometimes we'd get into some deep topics. We, you know, we got into our sex, depression, and intimacy. I would say, you know, there's arteries everywhere. We had a, a guy that came, and he said, you know, look, I'm having issues in my marriage. I'm having erectile dysfunction. I don't want to tell my wife. I'm embarrassed, and I, she thinks I'm cheating on her. Well, you don't get into that conversation in the clinic appointment. It's too much. But he was able to, de to develop a relationship with a CHW. He realized that this is his disease that's been out of control for years and talk to his wife and say, hey, this is the disease. This isn't me trying to cheat on you and trying to do things I shouldn't be doing. And they were able to talk about marriage. And so we talk a lot about marriage in there and talk about the complications we might have in marriage. Um, and, and so these, you know, by month four and five, they are really close to their community health workers. Because also their community health workers are talking to them every week at this point. We use an app called OMD. Just download it. It's free on your phone. The CHWs talk to them once a week. And they either text or call whatever the patient wants. They have three questions. Number one, how are your sugars? Oh, they're 200, they're 140, so we can get you the hypoglycemic, hyperglycemic. Number two, any issues with your medications? And this is where you think, well, yeah, yes or no. No, no, no. They tell me on Saturday they have all their pills and they're good to go. On Monday morning they tell the CHO, well, I don't have any of my pills. I haven't been taking them for weeks. So I'm like, so we say, mentiras, mentiras. It was our Monday morning conversation. You know, lies, lies. But again, they will not tell me. Because I am not from their culture, it's, there's very much a culture of don't you know, of impressing the doctor. Not trying to lie to the doctor, but they don't want to tell me there's a lot of embarrassment. They want to please, and so if they say, "Well, I haven't been taking my pills," then you know, that, that would that would make them feel sad. So, but they'll tell the CHW that they'll tell the CHW I, I can't get them because I'm not eligible anymore. So, two is is issues with medications, and three any questions or concerns. Why did the doctor put me on that cholesterol pill? My LDL is just fine. And I thought we were doing this LDL less than 100 thing. Welcome to ATP4, right? So conversations were then recorded in Excel Online on this Baylor box. And so the CHWs go into Baylor box. And so you can see here patient 7022. 
the CHW this week writes in here, you can only see part of the cell right here, they write their conversation, how their sugars are doing, any issues, their medications, and so then the provider logs on, and the provider can see how did that conversation go, and say, oh, no, the sugars are 220, okay, let me get the patient a call, I don't want to wait till next month to do that, or, oh, they're having, and we also train them on, the, you know, HIPAA, we train them on what's urgent, so we don't want to say, patient, you know, patient's having chest pain, from the left side going down to the, we, had, we did have one incident there. I said, okay, then we need to have a little conversation on what's emergent and urgent and what we do and do not record in here. And so they've been very good at say, hey, we got to let you know about this immediately. And the conversation is recorded in Excel and Box, and then we are able to look at them. Now, this is where the support mechanism comes back. If they're going to be thrown out there to get all this information about the community health workers, we need to provide a support mechanism for them. And so what we do is I meet with them every Monday night at 7.30 at night. We log on to Zoom. And you can see one of our meetings here. We have our PowerPoint. Um, and the first thing I say is first 15 minutes, any questions or concerns? Next 15 minutes, hey, here's some project updates. And then the last 30 minutes is educating. Hey, let's talk today about cholesterol. Let's talk today about sulfonylureas. Let's talk today about metformin. And by the end of this training, they do a pre and post test. They're like mini med students. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, you know, their glimipiride is two milligrams and their sugars have been 180 in the morning fasting. They're not taking their afternoon sugars. I've been telling them to do that. But I wonder if you should go up on glimipiride from two to four. What do you think, doctora? I'm like, reasonable. <laughs> so it's, it's really, but they've been, as long as I provide that support mechanism, I haven't had issues with them going, oh, no, you're going to increase your meds. They haven't been self-titrating meds. They're very good at coming back and asking. They don't want to be thrown out there. They want to be supported. They don't want to be the doctor. They want to be the community health worker. At the end of the training, uh, they get a certificate, and this is important because Texas is one of the few states that does have a certification and recertification process. So I became a community health worker instructor, so during that last half hour, I could provide them essentially CEUs for community health workers in Texas. Different from every state, but in Texas it's a big deal because if I want to keep this program running, I've got to make sure they've got their hours. And pre-Zoom days, it was really hard to get these hours and expensive. And so that helped a lot. For the medication access, if you're a clinician or you're a really detailed person, you'll like this if you're not. But I wanted to show you this just to give you an overview of how important this, you know, there's physician inertia. A lot of times physicians get in there, well, diet a little more, exercise a little more. And this is really just to give a very general flow chart. Hey, if their sugars are okay, Good job, you know, monotherapy. If the sugars are really not so great, then we're thinking dual therapy. And here are the three agents that are available. Now, if you want to do some other agents, that's fine, but make sure they're sustainable, meaning at least six, if not 12 months eligibility. That's what we're defining as sustainability. Our outcomes or our measures are looking at hemoglobin A1C, preventive care, participant satisfaction, and CHW pre-post test. What did we find? So I'm gonna walk you through this chart here. On the left-hand side there, you're going to see the clinical outcomes, which is basically hemoglobin A1C, blood pressure, weight, and the preventive care. Time group, or the intervention, is on this first uh, side over here, and the usual care is on the right side, and then the p-value is all here. And so for the non-statistician-minded people, less than 0.05 is what we're looking for for statistical significance. We found our primary outcome uh, statistically significant compared to the control arm, uh, blood pressure, we did find as well, although I will say blood pressure, you could breathe and you're not going to find that one statistically, but we did find statistical outcome on that one. Uh, weight was interesting. So we found that our, they were about the same. They both lost a little bit in the control. I thought, oh, after all of that time that we've been talking about nutrition and everything else, we get nothing. If you're familiar with the hypoglycemics, 
Plumiferi, the sulfonylureas, can do what to your weight? Increase it. Actos can do what to your weight? Increase it. And now if you're familiar with the more expensive stuff, like SGL2T inhibitors, they can do what to your weight? Decrease it. So our usual care group, we I just couldn't talk to those providers enough to say, hey, it's better just to get them on something than to get them on the gold. Hey, we're going to do silver here. And so really most of the patients in our program were taking the lower-cost medications, which will increase weight. Versus in the control arm, they were really taking, for the most part, the more expensive stuff, which will decrease weight. They weren't taking them well because they had a lot of eligibility issues. But we really should have seen our patients increase weight, and we should have seen the control patients decrease weight. But we really saw a net neutral. So I was happy after looking at that data. I want to draw your attention, though, to the preventive care. We looked at seven different things. B12, you might be familiar that there's been studies showing that formin can cause B12 deficiency. B12 deficiency is so fixable. If you've had patients in the hospital, you know, I've, I've had a few that have deficiency and they come in and they're just, they're just off. You don't know if they have dementia and then they've got this funny feet thing going on and, and they're just odd. Like they're not off, but they're off. And you know, they're just, and you give them B12, bam, a couple days later, normal person. And it really is, is quite interesting to see that. So to be able to fix this with a very, very cheap supplement it really is life-changing. But it's never measured in clinic, knowing that it's associated with the number one di uh, medication, metformin, for diabetes. So B12 is important. Statins. And not only statin, are they on the correct dose statin? Uh, looking at their vaccinations. Looking at um, also their so pneumococcal flu and then also uh, retinal eye exams. And so these things here are easy to get lost, but honestly, I think this is why this is so important, to have this longevity of care. They get education, but also we're able to really make sure they get the preventive care. Did they get a foot exam, and did they get a foot exam done correctly? Did they listen to the pulses or look at the feel for pulses? Did they look at the skin? Did they do all three components of the foot exam, or was it just, oh, yeah, foot, feet look good? So I think that's an important point to, to bring out of having these longevity of care. Uh, CHW outcomes, uh, they significantly improve diabetes knowledge. CHWs identified most of the barriers. So 88% of the barriers to care, which identified, uh, as, as we said, obtaining medications, eligibility, or getting an appointment, CHW identified most of these barriers. 92% of patients had medication barriers. So we concluded that uh, time resulted in improved clinical outcomes and compared to the control arm. CHWs are uniquely positioned to recognize barriers that may have otherwise been identified. Again, 88% of the barriers were identified by a community health worker. And finally, yes, telehealth can be used to support CHWs. And then we published this um, afterwards. So then I, I started thinking, well, long term, what does, what does this mean? And, and really it raised two questions for me. The first one was sustainability. Okay, so we've come in. And we've done a project, and we've gone and, and, and helped these patients, but this is 25 patients out of a clinic who has 1,000 patients with diabetes. Will these patients continue their results? And will the clinic continue running programs like this? Well, the answer for the clinic part, patients, yes, we did, we did publish that last month. But from the clinic standpoint, no. They, they wouldn't. And I, I thought, because there's no CHWs trained, there are CHWs for our team when we left. And we didn't train any providers to do anything. Those are our providers, and we left. So 
So I really question, well, what is, how sustainable is this? Why, why spend so much time and effort? Is this just helicopter care that we're coming in, caring for these individuals, and then taking off? And 25 better, but we've got a whole bunch more with diabetes in the world. So sustainability was the first question. So then I said, well, maybe we could train a clinic. And so this doesn't look like it's long to you. Dr. Lynn, it might look like it's long because this is in Katy where she lives. And so an hour away from Houston, we run another clinic. This is called, uh, and I said, well, let's see if we can train a group. And so we went to a local church. Uh, and that's, a lot of times I, I recruit CHWs from a church. Why from a church? One, they already have typically a group of individuals who are ready to volunteer. And they all, they kind of self-select sometimes, like, mm, not him, mm, not her. So they I go in there, I talk to the pastor, and I'll say, hey, we need six people. This is what we need to do. This is what the work entails. I'll ask the pastor, and I said, if you can come up with six people, that would be great. And so they kind of self-select this group. They came back to me and said, yep, we got a group here. So there was a local church that we tied up with a local clinic out there. And so we went out, and we ran the project, and they watched us run it for six months. And then we said, your turn. And so we mentored, we had the CHWs from our team team up with the CHWs and their team, linked them up, mentored them, they called them every week, how are you doing? Just like we asked them, how are you doing? Any issues, any questions? We've, we've nailed those three. And I linked up with the providers and I would, and I kind of mentored them through the program so that they could see the patients. And yes, it worked. We say yes, we were able to mentor a clinic and so the same results that we had at that same clinic were the same results that the CHWs and the providers had at their clinic. But again, this was just one small clinic in Katy, and so now we've got funding to go ahead and expand it to 250 patients and five different clinics across um, Houston and, and moving on to other parts of Texas as well. Sustainability, scalability. Can we make this bigger? Can we make this go for other diseases, other conditions? What about the clinics who can't run this? What about the clinics that say, yeah, I'd love to do a three-hour program on a Saturday morning, but I can't? Or what about the ones that say, my providers are burnt from COVID. I'm having a hard time getting them to come to the clinic. Or what about the patients that, that can't come to the class? I ran the data to see, well, the people who said no when we called them to, to recruit them, 47% were work-related issues. 10% were because they were out of town. Now, out of town, as you're familiar with the Latino community, that might be, well, I'm in Mexico this month, I'll be back next month. But we can still talk to them all the time. But they aren't physically in town. So out of town, or a lot of, uh, particularly the, uh, men will work, maybe they'll go to Austin and they'll work for the week and then they come back. So a variety of reasons, but it doesn't mean out of town like I'm staying there for six months. Transportation is, is was the other one. I, I don't have a car. And so what about this, 47 plus 10 plus, we're talking almost 60% of the individuals who said no, said no because they couldn't get there. So how do we reach these individuals? We really had the cream of the crop when we had the people who were able to come for three hours once a month. And so I ran a program, or I'm currently running a program, and I call it the simple program. One, because I want it to be as simple as possible, and two, I was almost out of money on my last grant. So it's called the simple program. Um, and what we did is we took all the education. Instead of having them come to the clinic, we put it on YouTube. And we have a secure app. This one's called Care Message. Send them on Care Message. Once a month, they get everything on YouTube so they can watch it. We learned that at 15 minutes, we're able to see they stop watching. So we don't, can't do them 30 minutes. We do them at 15 minutes. So 15 minute little things every month. They get same education as what we did in the class. And the community health workers still call them once a week for six months. And then for the next six months, they call them every other week. How are you doing? Any issues with your sugars? Any issues with your refills or your medications? 
then they go back and then they log that in and this community health worker, they go back to the clinic, they say, hey, patient 1609 having issues with whatever, the clinic comes back to them and says, oh, I didn't realize that. I sent the medication over to Walmart. Oh, the patient thought you sent to CVS. So a lot of times it's just that communication gap that sometimes they have to wait three months to figure out that's all it was. Clinic goes back to CHW. CHW goes back to patient. Oh, okay, I got it. And then they're able to fix the problem without this gap in care. Uh, we have ten, uh, like some flu shot, just so they can meet. Then the CHW said, well, this is great, but I've never met my patient. It's kind of weird to talk to someone every week and never have actually met them. And so we said, oh, that's true. So we did a kind of a flu initiative a few weeks ago, and we, we called all the patients and said, hey, if you want to come get your flu shot, come here. And so the CHWs and the patients could meet each other. Preliminary data, the intervention compared to control has superior clinical outcomes and access to care. And so... Thinking broadly on this topic, and I hope that as I've talked about uh, our project, that you've thought about what you're doing in your work. And again, we're talking about diabetes here. The CHWs are kind of this local uh, bridge to care, essentially, and the site that we're going to as community health workers. But maybe this could go, like we talked about before, to cancer prevention. CHW is that communicator. Maybe the site are housing. It's a certain area in a certain community. Maybe this is obesity in public schools. The site is public schools. And the community health worker is that, in, that intervention, that, that communicator saying, hey, we can get fresh fruits and vegetables delivered to your house. There's a program that we have, but we have to link the patients, and we have to link it together. So a lot of times there's that communication gap that so many times goes unanswered, and patients so many times miss out on opportunities, and their health care suffers. This is our team. Um, so now we had six CHWs in the first project, six CHWs in the next project. And then some of our CHWs, uh, like the one here in the middle, she's gone on to nursing school. I met her six years ago, and she says, you know, I want to be a nurse, and I, I want to go back to school, and um, life events have let me not do that. And, and she says, you know, maybe being a CHW would kind of be good on my application. I said, absolutely. And so now she's a practicing RN and working hard during the COVID pandemic. Another gentleman up here was a part-time pastor, and now he's gone on to become a full-time pastor, who's one of our CHWs as well. So it's been fun to see them progress in their knowledge and in, in their careers as well. I'd be happy to entertain any questions if you have some. Thank you again so much for listening. question is, are the CHW Spanish speakers? Yeah, so everything is in Spanish. Um, the CHWs are Latina or Latino, um, and all of the, the curriculum, everything is in Spanish. Um, so the, the classes, some patients prefer to speak English, and most, almost all the CHWs are bilingual. Maybe there's a couple that aren't at all. My training is in Spanish, so I, I speak in Spanish um, to them during it as well. Yes, so the question is, are, were the CHWs paid? That's a, a, a big question, and um, the most, there's many, CHWs really are these big-hearted individuals. That's, you know, that would be part of my definition if I were to personally define them. And many, many, many do it just because they care, and they just want to help someone. But there's a reality. If you, again, if you take that true definition of what a CHW actually is, 
they are also low income. They actually they also have their own needs to fill as well. They have to put bread on the table as well. So the turnover rate of CHWs, I've seen some studies seen like 75% turnover, really really high. Um, I can say we've been we've had zero of our, our CHWs turnover in the six years, and I think there's a few reasons for that. One of them being pay. Um, so they're they're paid, and I compensate them for their hours. I try to be as generous as the as grants will let me be. Um, and I have found it's better to have six CHWs at four hours a week than two CHWs at 20 or 30 hours a week, uh, particularly when this is, this is grant-funded. Uh, grants come and go, and so if they lose four hours, okay, if they lose 20 or 30, they can't do a job. They have to find another job, and so that really puts them in a dilemma. So they're able to do their work or their school. You know, she was going to school full-time while she was being a CHW. Um, they're able to do their own life. We meet in the evenings, and then and they're usually they're, they get really good at calling their patients. Okay, Senor Gonzalez, I have to call him around 11:30 because I catch him right at lunch. I always do that. And then you know, so they get really good at knowing when to call them, but they do it on their own time. Um, so I compensate them four to eight hours depending on the project per week. Uh, now there's one right now that uh, really kind of wanted to do some more, and and they really have come into, they are really part of the research team. So some really want to, um, to help out more with the administrative side, and so she's more compensated for that. Um, but the, the advantage of having these six is they really have different skill sets. And, you know, some are just great. They'll get on the phone, and, I mean, they've got patients crying and just sharing their life story. Otherwise, they didn't take their pills. I don't know what to do with them. I'm like, okay, so we've got some are more gentle. And, and so I kind of place them accordingly, and, and that lets me have that flexibility to do that. Um, and I think it's really helped support, because we need sometimes those people to, the, I call them my time machines, you know, the, you know um, to be the clock um, during the group visit. So, um, but yes, to answer your question in a very long way, they are, they are compensated. And I think it's very important to compensate them appropriately. Um, U.S. Department of State La of, of Labor is um, it's $20 an hour at the current rate of, of what we're paying. Yeah, so there's, on all four parts of this, so the question is, have there been cost, uh, like cost benefit analysis on our model? Uh, so the, on the four different parts, yes, there's been certainly in, in previous years, uh, CHWs have been you know, found to be cost effective. Um, telehealth, obviously, cost effective you know, instead of going uh, in places. We have not done a cost analysis in our time project. One, we just finished it last year. Um, but the, the other thing, the, the difficulty of doing a cost analysis in ours, because we've thought through it, is how, what are we measuring for the cost analysis? A lot of these are ER visits. And since this is not a closed system, uh, this is, if you were in, like, for instance, our county system, we could go to the local two county ERs, and we can go to those ERs and say, okay, this patient came to the ER, and so we can look at how many ER visits. Since this isn't a closed system, they could go to any ER, including Mexico or El Salvador. So we're dependent on subjective data to know if they went to the ER and and then if they are hospitalized, and then if so, for what. So it, can, it just gets, you know, it, it gets a bit complicated. Um, I can tell you as far as ER visits in our population, we've had, you know, they'll have maybe one, maybe two in the entire time, and they have not been diabetes-related as far as ER visits go. Um, the, the biggest drawback to cost-benefit analysis on this is the provider time. So providers normally see these patients once a quarter. This is once a month. You know, so, so provider time is going to be different, and that's going to be an increased expense. 
on the flip side, when I see patients, I see them about five minutes per patient. You say, what? So why can you see a patient? Well, one, I'm seeing them once a month. Two, the CHWs are calling them once per week. I don't do any education, which is a huge part of the provider visit. The CHWs do all of the education. We do one physical exam per month. So, for instance, you know, the first month is we listen to the heart, just one targeted exam per month. And then part of that medical group, when the, pa- the physician's not seeing the patient, is the CHWs talking about, well, this is why the heart is important, and this is why the doctor listens to your heart. And so we target one exam per month. So you can see them very quickly in that time. Yeah. Um, so you said that this program may have some adaptability towards uh, cancer in the long run. I can see how for something like diabetes and cardiovascular health, how this would be um, a fantastic program to set in but something like cancer would, in my mind, be more of a multifaceted monster where it has an unpredictable nature as well as a predictable nature. Mm-hmm. How could you see this program kind of being manipulated to fit the cancer? Sure. So the, the question is, uh, how, how could this program, and I'm going to go back to this chart here, um, how could this program be manipulated to something like cancer? So chronic disease, easy to see, right? We can replace hypertension with diabetes, or we could replace obesity with diabetes. How can we do cancer? The easiest way with cancer would be cancer prevention, not cancer. So, you know, once you have pancreatic cancer, we have issues. But I will, I will put a caveat on that. So cancer prevention, there's, there's lots of, of, um, of studies, particularly like in the Texas border area where CHWs do, um, you know, making sure individuals are getting their PAP, you know, every three years. And so really on the cancer prevention side of things, so making sure they have their, you know, the guaiac or colonoscopy. So what is on prevention? And the CHWs are the ones that go into the house and they're talking to the patient, making sure they've actually gone and making sure they have their appointment at the clinic. Now, with cancer, so let's say our patient has cancer. So in my other life, I work as a hospitalist. And I can't tell you how many times I go and I see a patient and I'm just starting on day one and they come and I said, well, I see you were just here a couple days ago and you're back already? Well, yeah. The issue is I I wasn't really sure how to take my pills and then I went, and this is in the non-low-income hospital, you know, there's a variety of of incomes. I wasn't really sure how to take my pills and then they said they were going to send it over to the pharmacy and I don't really know what pharmacy they sent it to because I went there and they said it wasn't there and then I started getting really bad stomach pain because, you know, I didn't have anything for my pain control and so I just went back to the ER. Anyone a provider and ever heard anything like that before? So, you know, a colleague uh, works on the administrative side, and, and he says, man, we get so many, we call them rebounds, so many rebound admissions. I said, ah, here the problem or condition is rebounds or hospital discharge, right? The site, we don't want the site to be as the hospital. And then our intervene here is the CHW. So what if when every patient was discharged, they were connected to a CHW, and the CHW upon discharge meets the patient and says, hey, I'm going to give you a call tomorrow, make sure everything's okay. That CHW talks to the patient and says, hey, the, I didn't get my pills. The CHW then talks to the doctor and says, they didn't get what they need to. And they go, oh, okay, well, let me just send it to the other pharmacy then. You see? So a lot of these gaps we have in our healthcare system, and then we go back to the cost and the analysis. I think, man, I want to run that study for an ER because they, they would just take that. Um, a lot of when it comes to cost and the analysis, that would be huge to, to, to attach a CHW with just our patients, particularly we call them the frequent flyers or the frequent rebounders that come back. Usually it's not because patients want to live in the ER. Most patients don't want to come back to the ER, but they're scared. They don't know who to talk to. They didn't get what they need. And so where, where else to go? 
but to, back to the ER because that's what's safe. And particularly in our patients without a lot of education or that don't speak English as their first language, what do you do? You go back to the ER. The question is, what about taking this program to the rest of the world, outside of the U.S., outside of Houston? That's my long-term goal. So, I, I, you know, I, I'd like to circle back. You know, like I said, I started at Ecuador when I was 16 years old. I'd like to circle back. Uh, so far, I, I can't seem to leave Houston. Every time I try to leave Houston, I just get another clinic in Houston. And you know, Houston's so diverse, I haven't needed to leave Houston. Uh, but I think something like this, our, our church is affiliated with a, a, a program in Peru, and you know, I think something like this, after doing, I've done international work pretty much from Mexico down to, to, to Peru and over in the Caribbean, and just seeing a lot of, a, a lot of the gaps, and you know, I've done a lot of trips where you go there, you're there for two weeks, and you know, I remember one trip we went on, we gave him, uh, this guy had high blood pressure, we're in Dominican Republic, we give him hydrochlorothiazide, which is diuretic, and I'm like, did anyone check his potassium before we gave this to him, or is anyone going to follow up on this potassium, or are we just giving him a diuretic, and it's 95 degrees outside, and we're taking off? Yep was the answer, you know, and I thought, oh, no, 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 we, we can do better, we, we, we can do better care than this, and so I think in an international perspective, the sustainability aspect and the scalability, I think something like this um, would be huge, and, and really, uh, and there's been a lot of books written on investing in the local population, I, I think as Americans, we have so many resources, but this green circle here gives us a wealth of knowledge, and really, what are your needs? What do we need to do in your area? Because what I do in Houston is different than someone does in Austin and someone does in Nebraska and someone does in South. You know, it's very, very different. But I absolutely think this would be a great model, and I would hope to, to take, uh, keep expanding the model to other areas. But we have to remember how to support the CHWs in the other areas. And so that's why I think telehealth is such a great thing. And not that I think COVID is great by any means. It's done a lot of bad things. But like I said, one of the great things COVID's done is open our world to telehealth. And that supports individuals at the front lines. Yeah, so the question is, uh, she said before, a, a while ago, she hadn't ever heard of community health workers, and how does that get advertised? How, how do people know to become a community health worker? Uh, so the, from my experience, the, the most common are one is word of mouth. And again, if it, you are really digging it by definition, um, you have someone from the community. And so uh, for this, I'm about to start a new project, and so for our community health workers, I don't recruit them anymore. I talk to our, my community health workers. I say, hey, we need six more for this next project. And they go, they're like, okay, we got the next six. So I let them recruit from their own area. So that's one of the, the most common uh, ways. Um, the next is, you know, for, for 
it's opportunity. That's, that's, you know, so if, uh, before I went to the clinic, I went there and I was, it, was, it was blind for me. It was blind for them. I said, hey, this is what this is. And so really it's just the education of someone who knows what they are and they go to a site, whether it's a church, whether it's a clinic, whether it's a village, and, and ask them. But um, it's really word of mouth uh, is why most people would learn from it. Anyone here had experience with community health workers? In there, okay. okay. For Latinos or what's that? El Paso. Oh, you're in El Paso. Yeah, yeah. It, you take Texas and just kind of like draw like on the border towns, like just a red line. It's just community health workers are just there's tons on the border towns. And where were the ones you worked at? Kenya. Same area. Oh, Kenya. Okay. Okay. So internationally, it's very different. And a lot of times, you know, I use the I use the phrase community health workers, um, Latinos, or promotoras, or promotores, whether a different term, because I mean the terminology is is broad. Okay. 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 And sometimes I'll assume just called health workers, but that gets confusing because health workers are really, I mean, that could really be anyone, but it, it's, it's a very broad term. And particularly international, like I mentioned, we have a hard enough figure, time figuring out what they are in the U.S. International, you know, it, it's, it's very, very broad what they are and then what they are. I can't tell you how many papers I've written, I've, I've, I've read on the roles of a CHW and then a review of the roles of CHW, and then a systematic review of the roles of a CHW. I mean, it's very, very broad. I think people, I really think, even though they've been around since the 50s, they're really still an untapped resource. And I think people realize that, particularly with COVID, that's really opened eyes. There's some studies showing, um, you know, who's gotten their COVID vaccine, and then the areas that you use, community health workers had more vaccination, you know, um, prevalence than the ones who didn't. And so I think it's opened our eyes that this is this is a really, it's an untapped resource source and that we can keep utilizing. Well, let me give you some time to get to your next session. And again, I'm up here. If you have questions, please feel free to email me. Um, again, thank you so much for attending. It's, it's really been a pleasure.